Hello there, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Scale by Intercom. As you've probably figured out by now, Scale is now a dedicated space on the Inside Intercom blog where you can find a wealth of materials, including podcasts, of course, that explore how businesses are driving growth through their customer relationships. This means that you get a new Scale podcast every second week so you can continue to hear from a slate of brilliant leaders and thinkers about the strategies and frameworks that they've used to chart new paths for their customers and their companies. Today's release is one of those, and we're delighted to welcome Atlassian's Kirsten Habach to the show to share how her experience as former VP of sales at Trello and now global head of EDR sales at Atlassian has proved invaluable in bridging the gap from freemium to enterprise sales. She's a great guest with tons of actionable insights to share. So let's head over to studio and hear from Kirsten. You're very welcome to the show today, Kirsten. To kick things off, can you give us a bit of insight on your background and how you ended up as Global Head of EDR Sales at Atlassian? Sure. Uh, Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Happy to talk a little bit about my background. So when I came out of school, I didn't really know what I wanted to be. And so I, I very fortunately fell into getting a job as an admin at a a SaaS company kind of early days, managed security services before a lot of organizations really even knew what SaaS was. We were, we were selling it to banks and having to explain, you know, generally how the internet worked at that point to some of these (laughs) folks. So, and so I started off as an admin there. I spent, you know, a month or so in that role. And the CEO was like, do you want to go into sales or do you want to go into finance? Cause, cause our VP of sales and our, our CFO both want you on their team. What would you like to do? And I thought, you know, it was fortunate no one realized how bad at finance I was. So I was like, well, <laughs> let's, let's try sales. That seems like a thing that would be a good fit for me. And then it kind of, it kind of took off from there. And so for me, I was a sales rep and then I was an account manager. And then I started running an SDR, BDR team at that company. And from there, I went off and joined a startup at the time that was kind of unique in New York. There weren't a lot of tech startups and that was, that was Fog Creek. So the, the company I was at was selling primarily to banks. And I left around 08, which, you know, might ring a bell for people. It was right around when all the banks started going out of business. Sure. So um, I kind of jumped ship right before the, the market crashed on that. And then I went to Fog Creek and helped them build out a sales team. They'd never had a sales team before. They were kind of going with the model of product-led sales. And I worked for those guys for about two years. And I was doing this horrible commute into New York from Connecticut I'd bought a house around 08, so I couldn't sell it. So I was taking this job, but I couldn't get any closer to New York. I was commuting two plus hours each direction every day. And wow. while I loved the Fog Creek people, the commute was enough to just, I had no life. So I went and worked at another company for a period of time, was their VP of sales, ran their sales and account management and support team. And then Trello was about to take a round of funding. And so that was the Fog Creek team that had founded Trello. And they were going to spin Trello off and take around a funding. And they said, do you want to come and build our sales team out for us? And I said, I love you guys, but I can't do that commute again. I, I've done it. And they said, no, 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 we're going to build a remote company, which was just amazing at the time. And mm. I just hadn't been hearing that. And so I jumped at the chance and did that for about two years, built a remote sales team for the most part, along with the remote organization that Trello was primarily. And then um, we got acquired by Alassian. And so after that acquisition, I, I continued to run the Trello sales team. And then about a year after that, I took on America's enterprise sales as a whole for Atlassian. 
And I did that for a little over a year. And then Atlassian decided to build out this new team, which is our EDR team, something that we never had before. And we were going to build it out globally in our Sydney office, our Amsterdam office, and two locations in America. And they asked if I was interested in and in building something new for them, which again, I kind of jumped to the chance of taking on a whole new opportunity and, and a global footprint at that. And I've been doing that for just about a year now on the Atlassian side as well. Amazing. So I know when it's very prescient at the moment that you have such incredible experience working on a remote team, because I know originally you were due to do a session at Saster this year about building a remote team seems very timely for people right now. Can you talk us through some of your insights and experiences on that particular topic? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, I I love remote. I I wish the world wasn't being introduced to it in such a particularly Mm. chaotic state as as we are now. You know, normally it's not a a global pandemic that pushes a, a team to go remote, but but we're here. And so we'll we'll see how folks do with it. Some of the insights I have from it is just over communicate, you know, things like touching base with your team. Think of creative ways to do that. Use use Slack, have games, do, you know, town wide, you know, company wide town halls where people can have some interactive time during that. Do you know, happy hours over Zoom. The goal is just that when you when you do talk to folks, don't have the talk always have to be work talk, right? Make sure you're making those connections that you'd be making in the office, just make them remotely. And that's something hard for people to remember to do because, you know, you get into the day-to-day of your job and you have a one-on-one with your team or a team meeting and there's so many things you have to get through that you really do have to take a moment and take a breath and build in time to connect with people as people still. And so whether that means you need to add 10 or 15 minutes onto your team meetings to accomplish that, or add a separate meeting that's just a social meeting, you have to do that because people want to feel connected still, even if they're not physically in the same space. Can that be difficult to do sometimes when people are in different time zones? So like, for example, you said there have a happy hour, but you know, I'm based in Dublin. If I was to have happy hour with uh, one of my colleagues in San Francisco, it'd be a bit early in the day for them to start (laughs) hitting the beer or the cocktails. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So with Trello, we primarily had everyone overlap a certain number of hours during the day, usually like a four hour kind of core, four to six hour core working hours. Now, as you have wider and bigger distributed teams, it's harder to do that. And so you have to think about ways to connect with people that maybe is is async. And so we'll do like, you know, trivia things where people can submit answers and then we we pick prizes and we have done things where we've done like Trello boards and we've had everybody post a picture from their weekend and tell something about what happened. And then you know, people will go in and comment. And so it's one of those things where you're still making that human connection. You're still seeing like, oh, look, they went for a hike or someone, you know, baked a cake that looks so good. And you're making those little comments to each other and they don't have to be in, in real time. It's just another one of those things that keeps you connected to that wider team that you're talking to. We actually did one on Friday where everyone on the marketing team posted a picture of their worst haircut. (laughs) The 90s were very unforgiving in hair. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. That's great. Yeah, Yeah. things like that is amazing. We were were talking about... um, how our pets have been our coworkers and, and or our kids. And so people have been posting pictures basically of like their conference calls getting photobombed by their kids or like a cat walking across their keyboard or whatever. That's so fun. yeah, just keeping it lively and keeping it fun. So it's not all like 
deadlines and agendas and OKRs and, you know, just you're, you're still coworkers. You still want to have fun with them. I spoke to a couple of our remote team members a while back and one of the girls, Jade Shearston, who's based in London, but she worked remote for a very long time for Intercom. And she had a really lovely insight to give about remote teams, which was that people assume that they will be less personal and know each other less because they're not in the same place. But actually you see the books that people are reading and you see the pictures on their walls and you meet their kids and you meet their pets. So you do get to know them in a more personal way yeah. than you would if you were just sharing their office space. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. One of the things, you know, in my in my talk that I was going to highlight is just that, you know, office culture is not a default to having culture. You still have to work mm. at it. Just being in the same place doesn't let you know what people are going through or who they are. And that sometimes I think when you make an effort with remote because you're so focused on making sure you have a culture, it kind of almost overcorrects it. I think if you're doing it right, especially, which is that you do kind of end up knowing more about people because you don't have that shortcut, which kind of makes you not put the work in as nearly as much. That's such a good insight. One thing you touched on earlier when you mentioned the over-communication that you need to do. I mean, you formerly led the sales team at Trello before they were acquired by Atlassian. Yeah. And I know you've said about Atlassian that communication is the cornerstone of everything that you do. Mm -hmm. And you have other tools like Confluence. But I'm curious to know for your team, what are the other products in your tech stack that you consider to be absolute must-haves for a remote team? Yeah, I mean, Confluence for us, at least, is is huge. It really is the lifeblood of of everything that's going on on the team. You know, people are writing up, you know, what projects they're working on. They're getting insight from people, but they're also, yeah, writing up blogs on, you know, what what recipes they cooked this weekend and sharing that out. So it is a huge part of kind of what I would call that like long form communication. Yeah. Trello is something obviously very close to my heart for this that I think is much better for some of the visual and short burst communication. So that idea of like posting pictures up and getting fun little like one liner comments on that is a great tool for that. But it's also the cornerstone of like my team meetings, my outstanding items with my team, things like that. So, you know, it allows us all to be on the same page regardless of, of where we are basically. So those are two of the, the Atlassian tools, at least that I use the most for, for running our team. There's a bunch of other tools, you know, outside of our stack, you know, Zoom is obviously huge, Slack mm -hmm. is huge for us that we're using on a regular basis as well. That's great to know. I'm sure people will find that really, really useful. So then in terms of the team structure, how do you structure your own team? It just in terms of the, how the org is, is laid out right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I have two core offices in the States right now. That's our Austin office and our Boston office. I think they purposefully only do rhyming cities so that it's it's hard to <laughs> say what we're talking about. And then we have Amsterdam, which is our Amea location and Sydney. And so right now I have someone who runs kind of my America's team and he has frontline managers across Austin and Boston that are reporting up to him. And then I have two managers in the Amea office that are reporting they're frontline managers and they're reporting up into me. And then we're going to be bringing on a manager in Sydney. But for now, Amea is kind of covering that. So since America's is the bigger team, there's a lot of frontline managers there. We, we do have someone that's kind of rolling up to that makes sure that the team is getting what they need and, and that attention is being focused on them while I'm kind of scattered across those different groups. 
And aside from just the social aspect of it, it must be difficult keeping tabs and managing a team at that scale and Mm. so widely distributed. How do you go about that? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, you know, we talk about time zone challenges. I think generally, you know, it's easy to connect with Americas for me. It's easy to connect with EMEA for me. But but Sydney is, is a real challenge, right? I mean, we, we overlap a very small amount of, of time. And so when I go back to thinking about like those long form communications, making sure that the team knows what's going on, what the goals are, what we're working through, we do use a lot of, of confluence for that, making sure that they know what's happening and that they can, the most important part too, is that they can weigh in on that, right? So that they can make comments, they can ask questions, they can engage without having to wait to sync up with us. And then, you know, if they can't make team meetings, things like that, recording those, but, but making the time to make sure that we're, we're, we're chatting with them and connected with them. And, and so whether that's how it used to be, at least we'll see, hopefully the world goes back to this where we would all get together at least twice a year in the same space, but also doing those things, replicating that remotely as well and saying, you know, I'm going to stay up late. You're going to probably get up early and we're going to have a couple of hours to work through, you know, the goals for the quarter or the half or whatever it might be. And then having those regular syncs as well. Yeah, because it's a really easy default for people, isn't it, to to make decisions based on whoever happens to be in the room. I think that's kind of part of human nature. So it must be a real challenge for your Sydney workers to feel part of the decision making process. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, you're absolutely right, right? It's one of those things where it's it's oftentimes just availability is the person who has the most influence. And we really sure. don't want it to be like that. And so I was just talking to some of the Sydney team recently, and we're going to do a health monitor out there with that team as that team is growing to make sure that they are feeling like they're part of that decision making and they're not just on the receiving end of things that are being decided. And so the goal there is that It'll be across team group, across our sales, our pre-sales engineers, our technical account managers, our channel, and everybody else, you know, representatives from all those teams, leadership from the state side, myself and the other leaders of those teams. And we're going to spend, you know, a couple of hours and, and really talk through, honestly, what's working and what's not. And I think it's really important. If, if people haven't done these before to do these health monitors, to do these checks, Atlassian has some really cool playbooks actually on their website that are you know free for people to download that kind of tell them how to run these. But the core idea of saying like, let's get together, let's ask some hard questions. Let's say like everybody, you know, close your eyes and, and on the count of three, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle, and then open them up and say why you voted that way. And it just, it brings to light so many things that you wouldn't have thought of. And I think especially mm. when a team is not just distributed away, you know, in a different geo, but is also separated by such a time difference, doing these things is, is a critical part of making sure they still feel like they have a say in what's going on. Absolutely. And that sounds like a really, really good approach to take. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. 
course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So let's chat a little bit about how you sell because you have had a phenomenal sales career, to put it mildly. I know Trello is well known for having very much embraced the freemium model and you've advocated for this. Are you still a big believer in the power of freemium? Yes. I mean, I love freemium. I think the the key is if your product can can support freemium. And so I've done a couple of talks with different folks around this idea. And, you know, the reality is that like not every business is good for freemium. And you have to really think about what you're selling, what your product reaches, how you can support that before you go forth and and do that. And I could probably talk for an hour plus about (laughs) how you think about freemium. But the idea of saying, you know, let's give people something that is useful for them. Let's let them use that at least at a base level to really understand if it's going to fit their work and their life. And then let that product guide that sales process. I'm, I'm a huge believer in that. And I think that's where a lot of the, the future of sales and tech in general is going to go to some extent, which is to really let the product guide that people, you know, they want to talk to sales if it's helpful. <laughs> they want to talk to a partner in that conversation and have felt like they had the agency on their own to make those decisions to some extent. And a salesperson should be the person helping them make sure that they understand the right deployment and those kind of things. But they don't want to be hard sold. Nobody wants to be hard sold. And so I think freemium, I think product led, these are things that let people have that that agency. And then the the culture of the company that they're dealing with to support that creates better bonds. They they feel more positive about working with folks that work like that. Well, I guess as well, it's indicative of a sales team that really, really, truly believe in their product. If they are willing to allow the product to do a certain amount of the job of selling. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it gets into, you know, I I think it gets into a healthier sales model too. I think there's a lot Mm -hmm. less of kind of talking poorly about a competitor or, you know, things like that, because this really does tend to be something where people have had a pain and they have found a solution to that pain, which is what your software or tool or whatever it is does. And that you are just helping them understand the right way to implement it in in their organization. And, And I think people want to buy like that. I think you're seeing that with things like Tesla and stuff too, right? People don't want to go to a dealership. They want to be able to make those decisions on their own and then have somebody help them execute what they've decided. 
that's such a good point, actually. I'd never thought of that type of selling going beyond the SaaS world. Right. It's interesting, though, because I guess enterprise selling is so different. It's a different world to mm-hmm. that model. There's probably a lot more steps to just selling to an enterprise client. Yeah. Can you chat with me a little bit about your typical sales cycle now within Atlassian? Yeah, I mean, I think Atlassian is is sort of unique. So if anyone is a follower of Atlassian, they're probably familiar with the fact that Atlassian talks about how they don't have a traditional sales team. Mm. And so what that means is that we don't we don't work to land any new customers. We let, you know, our our marketing and our product drive that decision. So there's never a point where as a sales team we're going after folks that don't already know Atlassian and and love Atlassian. You know, we're really working to kind of expand and help them grow with the products as they grow. So that's the unique model that we have, which is, you know, we're not spending time and energy trying to convince you to, to use us. And, and that's worked really well for us and, and really well as a product-led organization. So our sales cycles are a little bit different because of that we're working with people that already have that footprint. But, you know, at the same time, enterprise sales is still enterprise sales, right? There's mm. somebody who wants to look at a contract. There's somebody who wants security reviewed. There's somebody who wants all those things. They want to talk to procurement. And so Atlassian has done a really great job of generally saying like, you know, we don't negotiate on prices, which is good for you because it's going to be a low price. And you know that, you know, if you had worked any harder to fight it, it doesn't matter. You, you got the same (laughs) price everybody got. And there's a a fairness to that. I think that customers really appreciate. And we try to make sure there's amazing tools and resources available to answer those security questions and, and things like that. So our, our enterprise sales cycle is, is shorter than other companies that I've been at before. But you know, people, if they're going to drop a decent amount of money, they still generally want to talk to somebody. They want to make sure, and that goes back to what I was saying. It's not that they they don't want to talk to sales. It's that they want sales to be a partner in helping them get through sure. the process. And I think that is where, from a cycle perspective, we help them. And that's why our cycles are you know shorter, I think, than the average enterprise sales world would be. And the same on the trial side too. We always had a much shorter enterprise sales because again, we were already the footprint was already in there. You weren't going through proofs of concept. You weren't going through all those kind of things because you'd already known that you had a problem and you'd already opted to have Trello fix it. It was really a question of how we satisfied your security requirements and your legal requirements and all that. And and when you're just talking about that part of the funnel, it's much faster. Yeah, because presumably with enterprise clients, the person who is using the product isn't necessarily the person who's buying the product. Right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're still dealing with something where, you know, just to go back to the Trello side, you might've had a thousand plus people using it, but those thousand plus people might be in, you know, 10, 20 different departments. And so you still do have to aggregate that up and figure out, well, is it going to be the head of IT that's going to be buying this? Is it going to be the head of marketing or some other group? Is there a collaboration tools team that's handling these kind of things? So you still have to find your personas, still have to find your decision maker. You still have to make sure they have authority and budget. Those those core components of Bant, you know, still exist. It's just the the process to get through it is a little bit different. And do you find something like sales ops is more important than in a process like that? Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge, if anyone's ever heard me talk on any other podcast or anything, I'm a huge sales ops advocate. And I think that understanding the data 
and understanding the customers that you're going after can make just a monumental difference in how your sales team functions. And those two, those two teams have to be really close together. And, you know, it's one of my regrets that I didn't invest more in sales ops at Trello when I was building it out than I did. That's the thing I would go back and redo because we have so much data about our customers. And I think that I kind of felt like I could aggregate it and figure out what to do with it. And I did an okay job doing that. But in reality, if somebody had been focused on making sure they understood our motion and our customers and how long those sales cycles should be and what all those metrics were, and they weren't splitting the job of doing something else, which in my case was was also running the team, you know, I think we would have been a much more efficient engine. And, and that's where we were going if, if the acquisition hadn't happened. And so I think if you're talking about product-led, if you're talking about freemium, where you have a lot of data about your customers, sales ops is huge. But even outside of that, just understanding the mechanics of how your team works is something that sales ops can can really influence and help with. It's funny, another team that you touched on earlier when we were talking was the marketing team. Mm -hmm. Do you find that you need a closeness between the sales team and the marketing team with what you do? Yeah, I I mean, absolutely. I think it's always kind of funny because I think there's like a a natural tension between sales and marketing. They're all, they're, they're vying for the same a healthy tension. It though, is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're vying for the same customer, <laughs> the same eyeballs. They want conversions. They're, they're really going after the same thing. And so you would think those two would be best buds, but, but it, it often doesn't, doesn't end up like that. I will say I have been fortunate in my career to have always been very lucky to work with marketing folks where that relationship was really, really close. But yeah, I think that where you get into danger with sales and marketing is when you start trying to take credit for whatever's happening, right? If, if marketing yeah. is like, well, I'm driving all this and sales is saying, well, I'm doing all of this. That's where you get into that tension that no longer is healthy, right? And so as you scale, thinking about that those two things are, are, are symbiotic. They have to be together, right? A, a team with no sales and only marketing or a team with all sales and no marketing, those, those are very unhealthy organizations, right? And, and no one can really do that. So the more you can think about those two as partners and have shared goals and, and shared metrics, and if one succeeds, the other succeeds, you know, that's how, in my opinion, that's how you scale. And I think you're seeing more and more where, you know, companies are hiring CROs or, you know, some role where sales and marketing are rolling up together instead of a CMO directly to a CEO and a, and a VP of sales directly to a CEO. The concept of that role and the prevalence of that role has been created, I think is the right step to start to say that these two groups are, are one and the same and they need to be together. The company is going to get to any kind of decent size. It's funny because how I was originally going to phrase that question to you was, do you think if a company is scaling well, that that relationship between sales and marketing naturally deepens as they go along? And I, I feel like that's more or less what you've you've just said. Yeah, I think I think it should deepen. I think yeah, that well, I, if it's if they're scaling well. So yeah. Yeah, if they're scaling well. Yeah. And I think if the if the culture tone is the right one, right? And so I think that's again where you kind of can get into danger where like if you're a marketing-led organization or a sales-led organization, what tends to happen is one of those people ends up feeling like the neglected component of that. And so the nice thing again with a freemium and kind of product-led organization is that I think at a healthy level, you're a little bit 
the part that's supporting the product instead of all those other pieces supporting marketing or supporting sales. And so I think that helps that state deepen. But but I would say, yes, if, if we were doing a health check, the, the, the healthy thumbs up would be that those two were, were scaling and deepening together as the company scaled. And in terms of other teams, then, do you find it's necessary to maintain, you know, a healthy feedback loop with your product teams when you're dealing with enterprise clients? Yeah, I think that, you know, products, again, product and sales, product and marketing, they should be able to guide each other because, you know, sales is talking to the customers at mm-hmm. this this one-on-one level. Marketing is talking to customers at a wider level, you know, from an engagement perspective. And product is not always very close to the customer. They have a product vision that they're executing on and they need to know if the market is taking that and if customers are happy with it. And so having those three groups working really closely together is important. And I think the other important part of that is that you know, sales and marketing shouldn't drive a product roadmap and products shouldn't drive a roadmap that isn't influenced by sales and marketing. There has to be a healthy balance there. And we always strove with that because it gets really easy as a salesperson to say, well, if you only added XYZ feature, I could bring you a million dollar contract or whatever it would be. And that might not be at all what the marketing team has as a vision for the product, or it might take so much that it would knock off all the other things that they were working on from an engineering resource standpoint. So finding that balance where sales can give those contributions of what do customers want? How much will they spend for How would that influence us? Marketing saying, this is the kind of stuff people are engaging with. This is what we're seeing. And then product saying, here's our roadmap. Here's where those things could or couldn't fit in. Let's talk through that. You know, that's a very healthy feedback cycle between those three groups. Really healthy. It's like a tripod. Yeah, because I I think a lot of product teams, sometimes if that feedback loop isn't balanced correctly, they, they worry about product bloat or taking the product in the wrong direction just for one big client. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, whenever I talk to product folks, I think that's one of the things they, they'll ask me the most from startup days, which is how do you work a healthy relationship with sales? Mm. I think there is this concern of like, if I get a salesperson out there, they're going to sell something that I don't have. And then we're going to be the ones on the hook to execute that for them. And so one of, you know, we kind of have these guiding principles and one of the guiding principles for us at Trello at least was that I, that our sales team would never sell or represent something that we didn't already have. And it was a really important principle and it was a really important agreement between us because it said to my, my engineering and my product team, I have your back. Like I am never going to put you in an uncomfortable position, but in return, we're going to have conversations about what people are asking for and we'll make agreements as a team you know I won't always be happy and you won't always be happy but we'll make those agreements as a team when it's time to do that and that has been I think that was one of the most important kind of things that I sat down and our VP of product and myself had that conversation early on and you know we always had a very healthy relationship from that point out Sounds like a really healthy way to establish boundaries. Yeah, it's important, right? It's important for people to know, especially when you're... What what normally happens, especially at startups, right, is that usually there's a product team already in place and you're hiring in a sales or a marketing person. And I I bet you, you know, 90% of those product and engineering people are scared of those two people coming on (laughs) more than anything else because they're waiting for those two people to say something to a customer that they shouldn't say. And so that relationship and establishing those rules is really important. 
I think that's a tension you see outside of SAS as well. I mean, I used to work in a radio station and the creatives, the content creators would always naturally be nervous of the salespeople or of something that doesn't normally happen being sold. It's It's a natural thing. It's the way of the world. It is. Yeah. And I always say, you know, you shouldn't be scared of sales, right? Because mm-hmm. if someone's doing that, they're they're bad at <laughs> sales. Yeah. It's like you should be that is. bad sales. <laughs> yeah. You should always under promise and over deliver, I right. guess. Exactly. Um, and if you're selling something that doesn't exist, that's quite the opposite. Exactly. They're all great insights though, Kristen. But before we finish up, where mm-hmm. can people keep up with your work? So I have a Twitter account, so uh, people can can find me there. I'm trying. I made a joke to my husband recently that I said I'm gonna. I have a New Year's resolution to be more active on Twitter, and he's like, "I think you're the only human that has ever said that." So, um, <laughs> but I'm there, and then uh, obviously I'm on LinkedIn as well. People can find me there. That's great. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting yeah. to you today. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kirsten Habak from Atlassian. If you did, we'd love you to give us a review. It helps like-minded people like you find their way to our content. We'll be back next week with another great episode of Inside Intercom featuring Des Trainer in conversation with Bob Wester. We hope you'll join us. This is Inside Intercom.